Hi, this is Bobby Broom, and this is Coffee Talk. Welcome to Coffee Talk by Berkeley College of Music's guitar department. Today, our guest is jazz guitarist, Berkeley alum, and associate professor at Northern Illinois University, Bobby Broom. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, we are joined by Assistant Chair Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey, got my coffee mug. Uh, your mug? Yeah. <laughs> um, and this time, and for the all-new season episodes, we're going to be joined by our new senior coordinator, Ben Cody. Hey, Ben. Hello. It's exciting to be here for my first uh, first time not as a guest. <laughs> <laughs> this is so great. Uh, we loved our, our uh, former uh, co-host, Ian Steed. He's moved up in the world to another great position at Berkeley and is also currently on tour with a wonderful band. And so uh, we're just thrilled, thrilled for him and glad to have been with us. Um, and this um, day, our guest is the great jazz guitarist and alum of Berkeley, Bobby Broom. Hi, Professor. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, so how do you take your coffee? Very dark and uh, a little cream, a little sweetener. I use coconut sugar, oat milk. And um, several years ago, my wife bought me an Illy coffee press machine that just does the pods. Mm -hmm. Illy lover or just a, you know, dark roast rich coffee lover. So I do that or a heaping, heaping, like I just did of um, instant, you know, freeze dried kind of stuff. Oh, nice. A little, little chocolate when I can to make it, you know, kind of mocha-like. I'm a dark, like, coffee lover as well. Um, and I'm wondering, like, a lot of people have said that over time, um, the coffee choices have changed, um, and especially in relationship to like all the different aspects of your career. Do you feel like being on tour or being a teacher or how has all that shaped your, your coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, definitely being on tour. I've always liked coffee. Um, when I was a kid, my parents would let me have it on the weekends so I could have it on Saturdays and Sundays and not Fridays because that was school day. Um, and I would drink my cup and it was like taster's choice, freeze dry <laughs> instant. And, um, I drink my cup and go right back to bed on a Saturday morning, you know, after cartoon Sunday too. Um, so it did not have that kind of effect on me that I knew of, at least uh, at that time. But I think, yeah. Oh, so I've always liked coffee saying all that to say, and then, um, yeah, from years of traveling around and all over the world, really, but, you know, in Europe where, you know, and Italy and Spain and, and those countries where, you know, you can get good coffee and it's just a normal thing for them to put great coffee on the table, you kind of um, your, your tastes expand and, you know, you become aware of what really good coffee is. You know, it's so funny that you say that because when you said Italy, it reminded me of um, one of your musical collaborators is our vice president here right. at Berkeley, Ron Savage. Right. And he has this whole thing he told us about on this 
show that he'll only drink coffee in Italy now because of his touring experience. You mean only in Italy or really? I think that's what he said. From what I understand, he's like, otherwise it's tea because it was so good in Italy yeah. that you can't reproduce that. So he only wants the best there. Yeah, yeah. So- <laughs> yeah. There's a little spot at the Umbria Jazz Festival when you come out of their main hotel. It's right there on the corner before you go do your thing. And it was they they made Ellie, and it was just that's kind of what made me get the coffee press. Yeah. See, these are things that you would have to know when we get to like your advice for people who want to be band leaders. You have to kind of be aware, right, of of all of these little things about your your people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get there to some of the things that you're, you've been doing and more recently, you were a student here at Berkeley. And a lot of the people who are listening to this are coming to Berkeley for the first time mm-hmm. or they're preparing to. And um, you've had a number of different first days. You've had your first day as a student and then you've come back as a guest and you've come back to teach here um, and, and to be here different different lengths of time. Is there anything that stands out um, about that first experience for you as a student, like what you remember, what your impressions were, and then maybe something about a different time when you came back as a professional? Well, I, I'll tell you about my very first experience with Berkeley. Um, I was, uh, I think I was a senior in high school and I was trying to figure out, this is 1977, 78. I was trying to figure out where I was going to go to college. And, um, we, you know, the choices for someone like myself who was, you know, focused on jazz music, the, the choices were limited at that time. Um, there were only a handful of uh, colleges and universities that offered, you know, focuses on jazz music. So Berkeley, of course, was a an obvious choice. So I had a buddy that uh, we grew up together and playing in the same uh, uh, little neighborhood band. And uh, he was a year older than me, played guitar as well. I was a year older and was already attending Berkeley. So um, I, my parents arranged for us to have to make a visit. And um, my first impression was that looking around the street, you know, the city streets around the school, all I saw were guitar cases. And I was like, man, everybody here plays the guitar. I'm not coming here. <laughs> So that was really what I thought. And then I got over that, uh, whatever it was, impression, fear, and did decide to come. Um, And yeah, there were a lot of guitar players when I got here. And I made it my business not to worry about any of them. Only the ones that I thought I could learn or have fun with playing. So I got together with Joe Cohn, with Kevin Eubanks, with a few of my freshmen friends, not a few, a couple of my freshman friends. I'm trying to think if there were any other guitar players. I wasn't able to have access to Mike Stern. I didn't know him. He was a you know hot shot and stuff. But yeah, so that was how I operated. And other than that, I was sitting at my desk 
with my little cassette player and my records and whatever practicing Mm. like this. I remember I used to walk into the Berkeley dorm and Steve Vai would be holding court with a crowd around him in the lobby of the dorm building, which is what, 11, four, no, no, no. Uh, Boyle, what, what's the address of the, of the, that main, that used to be the, uh, the dorm building on the corner. Slice used to be across the street. One, the 150 tree. Mass Ave. Is that 150 Mass Ave? Well, yeah, I don't remember. Well, there was 1140 and 150. 1140 is, the, is something the else. Yeah, I think it was, I'm trying to think what, I can't think of the, the address, but in any case, where the dorms were. And then Vi would be there playing and, People oohing and eyeing around him. And I, I don't think I ever really stopped. I just kind of got on the elevator and went up to my room to do what I had to do, you know. I, I think I love that you're thinking about the, that you know who you went to school with, you know, and you're thinking about these names, you're thinking about because I think that a lot of students, it's hard for them to imagine, you know, it's hard to imagine when you're young, like what your life is going to be like in 20 years, you know? Um, but I think everybody loves this idea that you could meet people when you go to a place like Berkeley and then be lifelong friends and collaborators with them. And um, I know this relationship that you have with Ron Savage is a long-term relationship. Did in, Musically, is that true? Did you meet when you were at Berkeley or is that more recent? We met when I was at Berkeley, but more recently. Yeah, yeah. We started playing together more recently. Did yeah. you remember each other? Is that like a, a unexpected connection that you made as you a know, musician later in life? In a way, no. He went to Berkeley. He attended Berkeley after I'd already left. Okay. Uh, according to him, my name was still buzzing around, but, you know, that's what he says. Um but he did go to Berkeley with one of my band members who I've been working with for 30 plus years, the bassist, Dennis Carroll. Um, so <laughs> when I visited Berkeley at that time, I decided that mm, I wanted to have fun with the uh, situation that I was involved in. So I I flew my trio in, um, but these are both my longtime collaborators. Dennis and drummer Colby Watkins. And we've all been working together for over 25 years. So um, when Dennis and Ron saw each other, it was like a one of these reunion things. They went to school together. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. wild. And Ron and I just hit it off, um, you know, just hit it off. Uh, and probably personally and musically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think makes a long-term collaboration for you? You know, what is it about someone when you're like, wow, it's been 25 years, you know, could you put your finger on it? Um, well, it, 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 a lot goes into that. Um, you know, I found that when um, I make music, there has to be some kind of simpatico that occurs that maybe transcends music in a way. I mean, it does, of course, encompass music like all together. And then that leads to other connections. Like, you know, what goes into one's aesthetic? What goes into one's perceptions about music, life, whatever? 
those are all important things that develop a person's musical self, presentation, as I said, aesthetic. So you have to have some things in common, usually, don't have to, but it's it's nice because you've got to get along then and be together off the bandstand probably more than on. You have to withstand life and the vicissitudes of that, most of which happen off the bandstand just to be able to get on the bandstand. So, yeah, you need more than just, oh, that's a great, they're, they're great players. I mean, you know, that's part of it, but there's way more involved than that. So, yeah, I think that, I don't know if that makes sense, but that okay. that's what um, I think that's what I mean. And this wasn't a planned thing. Like I'm going to work with these guys for 25 plus years or 30 years. It just right. happened. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. Happened. You know, you things happen and you think it's over and then it's not, you know, it just life keeps going, hopefully. So I have a question for you that's sort of related to that. And then, um, I really want to hear what Cheryl has to say too, but um, musically as a classical musician, um, one of the things I love to hear um, when I listen to people is their tone. And um, I was particularly struck by your tone when I heard your concert here at Berkeley, um, because I, I just loved the, just the fullness of your sound. And I loved when you played with, um, with Ron, um, I love the way that he was able to play really bright and light and brushwork and all kinds of intricate patterns. And because you had this very full melody that came, um, through your instrument. And I'm wondering, like, what are the ways that you have over the years developed your tone and your sound? Um, and do you think of it as something that like is personal to you and, and is kind of like a constant or do you feel like as you play with different groups things sort of shift about it like how do you think about your own sound yeah that's um for a guitar player well I won't say that because when you said when you play with different groups and you you know you play different styles of music or whatever that is that guitar players do a lot of you know guitar is one of those instruments that you you know, some people don't have to pick a genre. They can play across styles or, you know, within a certain um, overarching style, there are different. Here's Dennis calling me now. Call you back. <laughs> um, there are different sub styles or whatever, different, you know. So thinking about jazz, what does that even mean? Like jazz guitar. Uh, okay, there's this sound and that sound and then these other sounds. So as guitar players, we, we can all be, um, oh, this must be urgent, but I'm not, I can't talk. I, I got to call you back. Um, they, we can be um, um, fluid in terms of uh, stylistically, right? We don't have to, we don't have to um, have one sound or we can be one of our uh, attributes or one of our selling points or characteristics of our uh, uh, playing or, or style or whatever is that we're malleable and we can fit in these different settings because of um, the fluidity of our sound. I didn't come from that school of jazz guitar. 
Um, although I grew up in the 70s and all I heard was rock guitar for the most part. And I guess, you know, some blues or some clean tone things, whatever was on the radio. But for the most part, part it was rock guitar. And uh, I had a big muff. Um, I had a solid body. You know, I started out just wanting to play guitar, whatever that meant. It wasn't jazz. Um, but I never felt comfortable with that sound for me, right? I, I When I heard... It was first George Benson that spoke to me. Actually, maybe before that, it was on a Charles Erland record. It was Melvin Ryan, but it didn't really hit me like that's what I wanted to do. I just loved that record, Black Talk, by Charles Erland, the organist. But so that was when I was 10. And so I was like aware of something that I liked in some different style that I didn't even know what it was called or that it was called anything. But then when I heard George and that sound specifically, that was like, that's it right there. That's what I want to do because I was already playing guitar. Then I heard Wes. It was like, duh. You know, my teacher had been telling me that for years. And I had a jazz guitar teacher from like age 12 or 13 uh, for a couple of years. So 13 and 14, I was studying with a jazz guitar player up in Harlem. Um, who was just kind of showing me the ropes. We just play tunes or whatever. And he, you know, gave, gave me a little theory, you know, had me spell chords and stuff like that. But um, so hearing him on a weekly basis probably had a big influence. But like I said, the, the aha moment was hearing that first George Benson record, which was Bad Benson and hearing that tone. And so going forward, Although I had to try to function in the real world of my own, which was you need to have different sounds and you need to play funk and you need to do this and that and the other, I would try to do it. And to some degree, I was a little successful, but I never felt comfortable for real free. I was always practicing to be probably what I am today. Um, I always thought in terms of my own sound and tone that I sounded funny whatever that means, but that's how I ex experienced it. Probably because it didn't sound like Pat Martino. It didn't sound like Wes or Joe. It didn't sound like those people. It sounded like me in some weird way. I didn't like it. You know, when you hear yourself speak on a recording, you go like, ew, that's how I sound. You know, and other people are going, oh, that sounds great. You need to do radio. <laughs> so it's kind of like that. But I do remember the day, and I, I had moved to Chicago by then, and I remember practicing, and something struck me, like, oh, I, what did I just do? And I played, and I kind of liked that. And it was a combination of a bunch of things, probably. It was the sound. It was something I was doing. Um, improvisationally, just something, the whole character of whatever it was struck me like, that's okay. You need to, this is it right here. You need to like develop this, exploit this, remember this. And that I remember that that was probably in my mid twenties, 26 or seven that that happened. Um, and there have been iterations of it. I listen to some records and go, dang, you, you know, you were really playing with a lot of trouble during that time. Or 
vice versa. You really had rolled off a lot of, you were rolling off a lot of the tone knob on the guitar during this, this year, these years or whatever. But overall, you know, the sound comes from, from here and everybody has their own signature sound and you just, like what happened to me, you have to realize it, accept it, and hopefully embrace it and try to develop it. I love what you just said. Um, and for people who are listening and not watching, when he said the sound comes from here, he showed his hands. And I think that's so true and so wise. Um, and something that's sometimes when you play an electric instrument can be overlooked to your own detriment. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, when that day came, when you were in your 20s, and you heard something about your sound that that really sparked your own ear, do you remember what it was that you heard that you liked? No. <laughs> no, it was just something didn't sound funny. It sounded good. That, ah. that general. Yeah, like you were centered in it or something. It sounded right to you. It sounded right. It sounded like like okay. It sounded it didn't sound funny. I like, love it. Yeah. I like it because I think I was just talking to students about this the other day that it, it's sometimes if you remind yourself to listen for the things that you like, the things that do sound right to you because you get it really attuned for a long time and to to listen to the things that don't sound right. Critically, yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to do that. That's obvious. But but also building on that strength um, is very powerful. And, and I also love that you said that you did it in your 20s, because I think it's good for people to know that there's a long time that you're searching for your sound, mm. uh, much longer than you might imagine when you're like 19 or 20 years old. Yeah, because, you know, everybody's supposed to be a prodigy and everybody's supposed to have, you know, like accomplished whatever at whatever age you're comparing yourself to whichever person you're aspiring to be like, you know, come at everybody's road is different and everybody's life is different. So yeah. the sooner you realize that, the better. Hey, Cheryl, what's on your mind? Well, I have one question that, was sparked when you were talking about when you first got here, but it, it actually ties into what you're talking about here is about um, this pressure and comparison and all of this. And, and now I think, you know, it's younger generation with social media. It's, it's a big deal. I mean, not even just with musicians, just with people every day, like looking at everyone's beautiful life and like, why isn't my life beautiful or what are these things? Or why don't I play that fast? Or why don't I have all those hip harmonic <laughs> ideas and, and, and all of that. And it can be overwhelming to find that place where you're like, this is my voice and I'm cool with it. And, the, you know, and because I mean, that to me was always what struck me about jazz is it was always about finding your own voice. You know, you go through the thing where you imitate people and you learn your acts and you learn the language that way. But there's a certain point where you, the, you know, the baby bird gets kicked out of the nest and you become your own. You fly, you start to fly in your way. And, and, but that, that also made me, because the thing that I thought about first to talk with you about was you're talking about, you know, when you were a kid and you came to Berkeley and you saw all these guitar players and you were like, I don't want to go. And you, and you had a fear 
you, you trace that to fear. So I think this also connects also with that. It's like this fear of, of, um, you know, being judged or this fear of not, be, you know, oh, I got to be the best. What if I'm not the best now? Or, the, you know, any of these things that we are scared of, but, the, and especially as an improviser, right? You have to be able to feel like I'm going to go in that, you know, people ask me all the time, what are you going to play? I'm like, I might not know till the, a couple measures ahead. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, I don't know what you're going to play. I don't know. You know, like there's, and to embrace that, I'm definitely for improvised music, whatever that is, is you've got to be able to feel comfortable with not knowing. And so, so I just made me think, you know, you can pick up on any of those in there in terms of like, you know, is it comparison or, or you're, mm-hmm. you're feeling comfortable with yourself, but how do you face fear? Wow. Um, Some of it is, um, you know, realizing that a lot of it, a lot of fear is self-generated or realized. Like there's nothing actually coming from from with without there's nothing that's actually oftentimes not all the time coming from without or you know that is prompting it's all in your head you know all these thoughts all these things that you're you know imagining then you react to them so like with the social media and looking at everybody what everybody's doing and saying and you don't have to see any of it if you don't turn it on. You know, you can just not see it. That's your choice. As soon as I start scrolling, then I'm subjecting myself to whatever I respond to or react to. Um, I am, uh, I'm on Facebook, but I have found in the last... I don't know, they probably waxes and wanes, but I, I, now um, in the last couple months, at least, I'm rarely on there. Like, I just don't need to see who's doing what all the time. It's not important. It doesn't affect me and my life at all, really. Um, so everything with, you know, in moderation, in terms of going into situations musically or otherwise, I've always felt that, um, well, just thinking about it in the earlier days when I was on, you know, in situations with people I didn't have any reason to be in situations with, (laughs) like uh, an Al Haig or a Sonny Rollins or, you know, whoever, I would not have been asked had I not been able so there was no like political anything going on from my end i just found myself in these situations okay should i be nervous or were you nervous is the question and the answer is no well why not well because i was too naive to be nervous and i was too excited to be in the moment too uh, I just wanted to make music. 
What did that mean? That means that I could only play what I can still only play what I can play. I can't be anyone else. I can't do anything else other than what I can do. So I need to bring, I needed to bring that to the table as best I could. And, you know, kind of imagine what that's going to sound like in the moment, if that makes any sense, in the situation. That's what, you know, music making is for an improviser, jazz musician. You know, you, you, you're using your imagination a lot. You know, you're imagining these things that you've heard, these lines that you've heard, this music that you've heard, much of which you've practiced. Hopefully you're not hearing things to play that you haven't played already or practiced because that's a problem. You can't, you can't allow yourself to hear that. You have to hear something that, so you have to be like really keenly in touch with what you can do what you know on your instrument. Now, whether it's simple uh, as, uh, you know, according to you or not, you know, you have to make your best presentation of whatever those simple things are. So I don't know if that answers the question, but kind of, sort of. <laughs> yeah, I think that'll be a great segue, you know, into talking about that and, and, you know, you know, facing fears and improvisation and, and, you know, how you practice and tone and all that is the question we ask, you know, all the, the guests on here, which would be, what do you think is the question that current students should be asking while they're here that maybe is something that they wouldn't think of normally to be asking? Yeah, you know, when, you, when I first heard that question, I thought, wow, I don't, I don't know how I would answer that. And I still feel that way. Although I will say this, like I, as a, a professor, I am, I often have the feeling that I wish students asked more questions. Now, I don't know what specifically I want them to ask, but I feel that they're not fully tapping into the resource that's available or resources that are available to them, right? So, I mean, I think, I think I remember how I was as a youngster, and I, I I hope I would be asking more questions. Although, you know, I was dumbfounded when I realized how hard making it in this business was. And I wished some of the elders that I knew from when I was younger had told me. And then I think, you know, like if they had, would I would have been would it have mattered? Would it have scared me away? You know, so you know, a lot of um, what we learn, we have to experience firsthand. You know, there's nothing that anyone can really say um, about a lot of things that are going to hit home the way that your own one's own personal experience will. Right. So that's a cop out and a way to. <laughs> Not answer this question, but it's, it is true. It is true. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a cop out because I think that you're really right about that. And I wonder, do you think, you know, as you started to sort of discover what we all learn in our own way about the challenges of this, 
profession. Um, and obviously you decided to stay, right? So here you are. Um, was there something that you feel like you learned that was really significant, whether it was an advice that you got from another musician or, or someone in your life or, or something that you found out on your own that was kind of a moment you think is significant to share? Not a moment, just maybe a, um, you know, a manifesto or something. I mean, I, I, I know that my tenacity and my uh, sense of self came from the upbringing that I had and came from my parents, you know, um, who were ordinary people, you know, um, whatever that means, or extraordinary in their ordinariness. And, you know, um, they really instilled some, some just that they are who I am. They were who I am. And, um, you know, I was encouraged to dream and to believe in those dreams. Not, my mother never said, believe in your dreams, but she listened to me talk. And we had conversations back and forth like every day because it took her a long time to finish dinner. And I would always sit with her every night. My dad was, he'd eat and then go watch the news. And I'd sit with my mom until she finished. And we would just back and forth, back and forth. And, you know, I could be myself. I could be silly. I could ask serious questions. We would really, that's encouraging a lot for a youngster. And um, so that was nurtured. A work ethic was nurtured. You know, a lot of things that, you know, weren't really um, tangible or that I can't put my finger on in in a aha, you know, this is when it happened or somebody said, but that, I took that with me into this field. And um, it, in addition to being validated by these figures that I was idolizing on these records, like, oh snap, Al Hay played with Bird. Like what's going on? What am I doing here? And then, oh, he's got a sub tonight. Oh, that's Walter Bishop Jr. What? You know, so, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, kid, you know, you sound good. Like, okay, I must be doing something right. And then Sonny Rollins, like, this is all, I'm so, this is emboldening my spirit. And, and, and so, you know, okay, so for the youngster listening, well, I'm never going to have a, you know, these kind of people say that to me. No, you're not going to have those people but you may have those kinds of people. What do I mean by that? That this jazz I'm speaking of specifically has a line. It's got a lineage of people. These people play with played with that legend. Then they went on to do develop whatever kind of a career they had. And certain people played with them. And, and it goes on and on through the generations like that. So just be aware of that. And um, yeah, it's not going to be, you know, history is not written about yesterday. It's written about 50 years ago or more. So that's why in Sonny Rollins' new 700-page book, the first half of the book is gloriously detailed. And then by the time they get to where I show up in this 80s or whatever, late 70s, the details get like, eh, whatever. <laughs> so that's how it goes. That's okay, you know. I don't I don't feel like, well, I'm never going to play with Louis Armstrong. 
you know, it's, it, there's, there's just something we need to realize about this music. And so I took these messages and they really, really um, um, bolstered my spirit when the chips were down, when I felt like, what's happening? Nothing. Okay. All right. Well, I feel like quitting. Well, I know I'm not going to do that because what else am I going to do? Not like I can't do anything else. Like I don't want to do anything else and I will not do anything else. And then oh, something happens that enables me to not have to do anything else for whatever that little period of time is that I need to be distracted from my woes and life goes on. And that's how it goes. You know, it's a, like a, not the most fun or um, glorious uh, way to go about living. You know, there's no security in it. But what does that even really mean? People lose jobs all day. Things happen every day. We don't really have security. Not really. I mean, you know, yeah, if you have a 401k and you can go to work, that's cool. If that's what you call security and that makes you feel better, then do that. But, you know, I want to play music. And so I'm living for the next time I um, can get on the bandstand and get that feeling that makes it all worthwhile. That doesn't happen very, very often, but often enough. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting what you're saying is, is you have to trust it. You have to trust your gift and your instinct and your voice. And uh, hearing you, you know, talk about, you know the when you're when you're in the heat of it right the 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 best actually our professor guy van duzer i i think described a career the best i've ever heard he said when you're in it it seems like you're zigzagging but when you're you know on the other side and you look back it's a straight line like all those things those moments where you doubted and then you know sonny rollins comes along or you know whoever these gigs that really changed your career and also your your musicianship and your personality and your heart and all of that in a way that you had that faith to hang in there and and you look back and you go well of course I, I wouldn't be me without that right right that's right I had a student here who after his freshman year he got in touch with me during the summer between his uh, freshman and sophomore year and he explained that he thought he wanted to drop jazz guitar and uh, major in economics so he wasn't the most dynamic jazz player at the time and but we had done some serious groundwork that the freshman year and I was like really excited about working with him going forward and that he was now equipped and that now we could and I knew he was talented so I just kind of um and I understood because we were in the middle or you know yeah we were in the middle of the pandemic and so everything was tenuous and unknown and scary as all get out for everyone, especially a youngster who's thinking about trying to make a career in music. Is there going to be live music anymore? Is there going to be a civilization anymore? Like nobody knew. Right. So I just tried to be understanding and said, you know what you're feeling, I understand. And it maybe is not the, this is an exaggerated version of it, what we're dealing with now, but this is pretty much how we live. 
you know, like with the unknown, kind of with a little bit of fear lurking about all the time. And we just have to like brush it off and keep our sights on what we're doing and do it. So, you know, I understand you got to do what you need to do. Well, a week later, he writes back, I think I'm going to minor in music and, and jazz and, you know, okay, cool, great, great. And then a week later, he writes back, I'm going to do it. I'm going to stick. I'm going to stay. And I thought, okay, great. So six weeks, eight weeks into the semester, the soft, first semester of his sophomore year, boom, he has this epiphany. All of a sudden, he's playing changes and the things that he could kind of hear linearly were starting to come out. He's starting to understand how to move them on the fretboard and like, and he's so excited. And I just said, now imagine if you had quit. This might have never happened, first thing. Second thing is expect to feel the way that you felt early, a different version of the way that you felt earlier. Expect that again. And then expect another one of these, and then those, and these, and those, and these. This is kind of like an investment graph like what your professor said. Yeah, it, you, you're really feeling the valleys and you see the peaks, but if you look at it from a, you know, an extended view, you could draw a straight line upward and that's what it is, hopefully, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Cheryl, I, I was just thinking about you because you're really getting into um, how people practice and the way that um, the way that you work on things, what stays consistent in your values and what changes over time. And um, I don't know if you want to um, ask, ask some questions about that or talk about that a little bit, because I think it sounds like a nice time to transition into some specifics, some nuts, nuts and bolts. So I'm going to throw it over to you. Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 whew, I'm always fascinated by, how people practice, what they practice. I mean, I, you know, I'm always interviewing friends, accomplished musicians. And then, you know, you, you ask a student, well, how do you practice? Do you have a plan? And they're like, wow, I got to think about that, you know? And I, and I, the more I teach, the more I'm around, I feel that that's our biggest job is showing people, well, you know, show them how to fish. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so there are a lot, you know, we have a lot of discussions, like how do you map that out? What are your values? What, what are the important things that you should have every day or in the course of a practice day? And um, so anyway, I'm curious, you know, what your thoughts on that and, and how you approach your own, your own arc of your own practice or, and what you advise others to develop. Well, um, I definitely am in touch with that. Uh, a lot of um, the way that I teach is founded on, um, just having a thorough grasp of music fundamentals applied to the fretboard. So for me, what did that mean? Because um, when I really started to practice to get good, as I used to say, I didn't have a teacher, but I had had enough private lessons and I knew enough music theory. I had taken music theory and um, as an elective in my junior high school, after school class. And 
Um, you know, my teacher, Jimmy Carter up in Harlem, you know, he would ask me, spell G7 sharp five flat nine. And I'd sit there for 20 minutes and crying. And so I knew enough. I knew how scales were constructed, you know, the derivative minor scales and how you made everything, but I didn't know the fretboard. So I knew what I didn't know on the fretboard. I only knew two fingerings for a major scale. That was not good. There was a lot of, there were a lot of empty spaces on the fretboard in whatever key I was in. I didn't know what that meant until I stumbled on a Berkeley, uh, Berkeley, on a um, Downbeat magazine article, one of those, you know, how to or widget or whatever it was called at the time. Five, five fingerings for the major scale for guitar. And that was the day that I realized this is it right here. Like, this is the difference. Because I know that all the scales are traced back to the major scale. So if there are five fingerings for the major scale that, 12, that span 12 frets, there are five fingerings for every scale that span 12 frets. So now I know that I'm not going to be going outside to play after school anymore. I know what I'm going to be doing. And that's what I did. I learned those five fingerings. How did I learn them? I took about two minutes, more or less, realizing where those dots were, according to my fingers, and those four or five frets, and then set the metronome and play those without looking at the dots on the page anymore. I don't need those. I can use my ear, and I know what a major scale sounds like, and now I have to play in time. Ooh, this is this is difficult. Oh, okay. This is what it is. And it wasn't ever drudgery because I realized in this long view with the real dim light at the end that this is music. I hear music right now. Okay, good. And, you know, just ratcheted up that metronome until I got sick of it because it was annoyingly clock-like and didn't feel like any music I'd ever heard on the radio. It felt like somebody was pulling me and I didn't like it. And I thought, I can keep time on my own. I can keep one, two, three, four. I really have to like be aware of all of this. It's about coordination. It's about breathing. It's about a lot of different things that go into this act of making music. And I apply that to and up chromatically. One fingering type chromatically up to about the 10th or 12th fret and back down. That is crazy people stuff. Nobody does that unless you really want to play music. And I really wanted to play music. The other uh, thing I had in my imagination was this is how classical people must do it. It's got to be even and clean. And that's it. Accurate. Okay. That's what I'm doing. And I did that with every fingering and then next natural minor. Okay, and then what do you teach? What did they teach next? Okay, then you do the harmonic minor. Well, what about the modes? I didn't know what the modes were and I did learn what they were. Um, that was also a downbeat article, modes on the guitar. Oh, 
I've been playing the natural minor scale on the uh, minor chord on uh, So What or Impressions on the West Montgomery record, trying to play along, playing the natural minor scale, D natural minor. Something was wrong with my natural minor scale. My natural minor doesn't sound right. What's going on? I remember I went to a couple of teachers, like just randomly found teachers in the phone book, trying to ask them, like, what's wrong with, you know, how come I can't, what do you play on a dominant chord that's not the minor pentatonic or the blues scale? And they were like, I don't know what you mean. And I'm like, okay, thank you. <laughs> so when I heard that Dorian mode, it was like another aha moment. Like this is meant to be because the answers are coming. And then I was just putting in the, the reps, doing the work in a really regimented way. There was nobody telling me, okay, now you need to know this, which is why I teach the way that I do what I, I have these just prerequisite things that, you know, I think students need. And then after that, it's kind of up to the person to continue on that trajectory. But now you have a practice regimen or a way to, if you develop these things in a in a in an efficient and effective way, you've you're you've pretty much learned how to practice. Now. Well, I, I think what you're saying is so important is that you the motive the motivation was there because you were listening to music, music and listening to great players. You know, why practice technique for bragging rights? I can play my scale at 250 on the metronome. No, you want to work on technique because it helps you play better and facilitate your ideas. And you could see that again. You were saying that was the light at the end of the tunnel. That's going to motivate me. I don't need someone telling me you need to practice. You know that inside because you see, oh, when I work then my hands develop that facility and all that stuff that goes with that. Yes. Now I'm going to play impressions and I'm going to be able to hang and, and, and play what I hear and saw, you know, so I think that's really important about what you're saying there is the, the motivation to practice all that stuff is for the music. There was a huge, there's something big in what you said uh, that is not, I mean, I can't take it for granted and I don't now, especially um, really I've gotten, like I'm graduating now, my first uh, graduating class since I've been at this university. And um, so just seeing them all the way through and realizing that um, playing what you hear is a saying and it's the truth, but it's not what we all are in touch with naturally. OK, so, you know, we can move our fingers around a lot on the guitar, especially, you know, we can train ourselves to play a scale really fast and then move our fingers back and forth on that scale. That has nothing to do with making music. That has nothing to do with making a melody that you imagine and you hear and you produce in the moment on a chord or a set of chords. These are two separate things. How do we get in touch with that? I don't know. I know that first, but I was blessed to be in touch with that from the very beginning. Like I would never allow myself to just let my fingers move. And I was always trying to play something that made sense to myself. And so I had to find the notes that worked on a chord or a progression and then find my way around to other notes. That was a process. 
And I played very slowly and methodically or something. I was very careful in the beginning. The way that I counted that was by trying to infuse as much feeling in that kind of simple presentation as I could. And that was my way going forward. Um, that won't be everyone's way. It's some, but in some ways I have to make students aware that can sing that what you just played. They can't like what, okay, what were you trying to play? And then they're reaching for it on the guitar. It's not on the guitar. I mean, it is, but you're not going to find it like that. You have to be able to. So, you know, it's just, this, this is this is not a cut and paste or, a you know, everybody's different and we have to approach everyone differently. And ooh, it's really something, really, really something. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that works in today's world because, you know, we're getting all this information that everything is fast and right now. <laughs> but that's really not how it goes most often, I think. I think it's really valuable that you said that because of that reason, because I think that um, even though the message comes sometimes that things are supposed to be fast and they're supposed to be right now and they're supposed to be right at your fingertips, we all want something deeper, you know, whether you know it or not. And I think that's a part of some of the the things that our students have to deal with coming out of this time when we we're apart. And also with all of this technology that they are trying to find their way back in some ways or their way to something deeper. And um, I think it's really valuable to hear you talk about that. That's just the way it is for everybody when, with what we do. Yeah. There's a time factor and there's learning about yourself and learning about how you process your ears and your hands and the connections between them, That which is not going to be the same. You can't just take your teacher's path and follow it and come up with yourself. You you literally have to learn about yourself. And, and I think that's something that can be very hard um, for our students who haven't maybe had the same experiences that allowed them to look more inward when they're always looking like, outward at the phone or at everything that's presented in that fashion. So I would implore students though, to listen to what your teachers are telling you and try to embrace it on some level. Um, yeah. Because that's what you're paying for. The, the, the knowledge and the wisdom is there. You have to process it in your way. Right. Uh, and and that's really what it is. Uh, uh, your teachers are not telling you something just to be a drag or just to make you feel bad. You know, the, the, quite the opposite. I think sometimes, too, like when you don't know where you want to go, you, you have to trust that person who's been down a road before you. Yeah. And you have to really give yourself over to that process. Yeah. And, you know, when you have the the good fortune to sit with someone who's a master of our instrument or is farther along than you are, however you think of it, and they're saying to you, I value this. And I think this is an important thing for you to work on. I really think I agree with you. You, you have to just take that on trust and really go for it. Yeah. And then you'll find your own way as you've, but you have to go farther first. Yeah. You can't just like sit back and say, well, I don't know. What do you got for me today? And and have a separate you got to dive in, I think. And, and the only way you dive in is with trusting your teacher. 
Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much um, for all this insight that you've been sharing with us. And, um, you know, as we kind of come to the end of our coffee here today, um, I'm wondering uh, to go around, you know, what what's on everybody's mind. Like, Ben, do you have a, a final thought that's on your mind today? Well, I, I think, um, you know, Bobby really made a good point you know, when we kind of went in depth of, you know, what what's the question that you think everyone should be asking? It sounds to me the question is really is, you know, why am I doing this? And that's something that I think <laughs> someone else, you, you, I don't mean it in a funny way, but I, it's, it's, it's something that you really ask yourself. And I can think of a good few dozen times I've asked myself that in you know, so many different point, you know, points of my career, whether, you know, I was, you know, starting out playing, in, you know, in middle school, high school, college, professionally. And um, I, I think that you always need to have an answer for yourself, but it's not always going to be the same answer. And I think that's something that um, this is having the awareness of that can get you a lot of mileage you know, as, as a musician. Cheryl, what about you? Well, thanks for joining us. I know you have a busy schedule and a busy day. Um, yeah, really great stuff. I know folks are going to want to listen to this over and over again. And it's cool because we have so many genres that visit this podcast and there's, there's a universal universal place where we all meet in terms of like these things about facing your fears and like what motivates you to work on these things and what are important ways to start to develop them. So thanks for sharing all that great info with us. Great. So professor Broom, do you have a final thought you'd like to share with the students in particular who are listening? Yeah. Um, I'll share my reasons for sticking with this. Hmm. It's because I love music. I loved music before I started playing the guitar. I absolutely adored music. The songs would come on the radio. They felt like I was seeing my friends, okay? So when I decided to play the guitar, that was also because I loved the possibility of being able to do what I aspired to do that I heard someone else do in that way, not exactly like them or that sound like them or any of that stuff, those details, but in general, to be able to do that thing, to express myself freely and clearly and abundantly in music. This is, goes beyond style or genre or whatever. And when I ask myself that question in the toughest of times, that's always been my answer. I didn't always like it because it didn't like answer the specific situation. But the big reason is always that that supersedes everything, no matter what happens. I just love music. Now, fortunately, I've been gifted and have been able to like I have some talent or whatever so good but ultimately I love music and I have to keep figuring it out and trying to go through life with it you know that's that's the answer for me so hopefully you do too and that can provide enough of a reason for you if this is what you want to do mm -hmm. I love that. I think it's the perfect way to leave everyone. 
And I agree with Cheryl. I hope that everyone listens to this episode more than once because there's a lot of great wisdom here. Um, so the four of us are going to continue to hang out for a little longer, um, but we're so glad that everybody else was able to listen. And um, we will be with you all on the next Coffee Talk.